This week's episode of the Love the Problem podcast, we kick off our series of event specials and we first head to Tech Festival in Copenhagen. Not your typical conference, but a collection of workshops hosted all across the city. We were joined by Payal Aurora, Clive Thompson and Chris Messina. With Payal, we discussed how the next billion users that are going to use the internet, through to how people from countries where sex is taboo and they learn their adult relationships from Pornhub. With Clive, we talked about how his love of technology led him to being a leading and respected tech journalist and author. And Chris, how we talked about his desire to create and keep an open and free internet that led him to working on projects with Mozilla, creating the hashtag and being involved with the various open source projects. Enjoy the conversation. Hi everybody, uh, welcome to another episode of Love the Problem. Uh, here's another special episode where we're here at Tech Festival. Uh, I'm sitting down and I'm quite excited with the Payal Aurora. I think I said that, did I say that correctly? Payal Aurora. Payal Aurora, okay. <laughs> um, she's the author, man, I'm about to butcher this as well, I haven't had enough time to research, but uh, the next billion users, did I say that? Yes. I did do that correctly, great. Uh, very excited to sit down with her and, and let's just jump right into it. Uh, so well, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself, your background? Um, to give some context into to where you are now. Sure. Um, so I'm from Bangalore. Uh, so some of you may know it as the Silicon Valley of India. But, you know, when I was growing up, it was really a nondescript town. And I moved to San Francisco uh, in my teenage years. And then I hopped to all the high-tax-paying areas, right? Quick, quick, quick question. Yeah. W- what was it like for the transition from going from Bangalore to, like, let's, co- let's call it from the Indian Silicon Valley to the American Silicon Valley? Actually, when I reached San Francisco, I literally saw teen, uh, T-shirts saying, don't get Bangalorized. It was just such a surreal moment, right? I don't know if you remember that, but, you know, the, the dot-com bubble, they actually were fearful of Bangalore. And it was this whole new thing. With growing up, I thought nobody even knew where Bangalore was. So, uh, for it, it was... Quick question yeah. for someone who's slightly younger. Uh, why were people afraid of Bangalore at that time? Because it was, you know, at that time, an out, initially it was supposed to be the back office of Silicon Valley, but mm. they were rising. You had Infosys and you had all these like companies, which is basically what happens, it's what's happening in China right now, right? Mm-hmm. Is you have all these companies like Huawei, which is actually directly threatening American competition. Sure. And it is not an extension or sort of a enabling no. of the American competi- uh, competitors, sure. right? So I think that was when people were like, well, also, it was about labor. It was mm. about outsourcing engineering jobs to Bangalore, but it didn't pan out that way. Okay. You know. So, so, so is, since we're on that, like, how what did pan out from 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 that? Well, w- what turned out that they, more collaborations took place because it was very strategic. A third of Silicon Valley is made up of a lot of non-American, right? Sure. India, Chinese, right? And so, a lot of collaborations to enable where these people with their networks in India and Philippines across board were able to establish these sort of nice ecosystems which were cost effective as well as actually insightful because, and this is actually goes to the my book, is how do you know your users, the whole digital demographic that's coming online, the next billion users, if you're not at the ground level, you know, actually understanding their needs, their aspirations, their wants. And so that is what was going on. They thought, that's a good partnership, right? So quick, quick question on, on that idea. And I've been an expat for like 10 years, and, and I really see the value in this. Can, can, can you elaborate on like, what is the real value of like being on the ground 
and then d directly interacting with people who are all over the place compared to trying to do it, let's say, remotely. Well, being on the ground gets you to understand that there is a lot of mythification going on about these digital users because, you know, media has basically fabricated tremendous numbers, uh, amounts of fiction, basically, about the future demographics mm -hmm. because they don't quite get who they are, what mm -hmm. they want. And when you're at the ground level, you literally are confronted with it on a very mundane everyday basis in a mm. bus, in a restaurant, at like the corner store. You know, a guy selling to you chai and he's still like, you know, using his mobile to talk about to his partners for delivery of the supplies. And you're like, well, it's very infused into their everyday lives. It's not exotic. You, you, you see people across board listening to music, constantly watching their phones and mm -hmm. watching Bollywood movies or Hollywood movies. So it's... It's so de-exoticized mm -hmm. that you really get at a very granular level how it's infusing into, into everyday practices, right? From banking, education, across board. I mean, would you, I know I, a different thing of like stuff that I've learned from my, my travels, I've always really got to the sense very quickly, like everyone more or less has the same wants and needs and desires and, and the things that are, let's say, playing out, let's say in Denmark, are equally playing out in India or Southeast Asia or Latin America. And it's, it's very, very similar drives are going on and they're, they're let's say, interacting with the technology in a, in a similar way. Would you agree with that or disagree with that? Or, or? Yeah, so there's one thing is in terms of everyone comes uh, with their own, fu their fundamental needs, which are universal, right? Yeah. The right to, you know, self-actualize, to uh, seek for privacy, to seek for pleasure um, and uh, for leisure. So this is a universal sort of template. However, each of the contexts are really shaped by how much your institutions are supportive of you. So for example, in Europe, there's an innate trust in the institutions. So if you see GDPR, what is a fundamental basis of GDPR is fundamental trust in law, right? Like you have to trust your institutions. And that is a very European thing. Whereas if you go to the global south, it's the opposite is this is a counter to the current day institutions would, in place. Would, would you argue, if from also from my and why I kind of laugh in Europe about GDPR, I would almost argue Europe is the only place with that level of trust in their institutions. Like in the States, South America, Asia, like it's, it's for us, it's like almost laughable that you you trust the institutions to that degree. Well, Americans yeah. trust their legal system, right? Like, legal system is sacrosanct in many ways. Like, you can sue anything, you know? Like, there's a sense that you can take ownership of it. I mean, there's a... People fight for their uh, legal institution. They take it seriously, and they believe it can make a difference. So I think even in the U.S. context, what they don't trust is the government. Yeah. But they do yeah, trust their, their law, right? And the institutions but, but I, but I, surrounding but, their law. But I also feel like we kind of, we trust it, but also do everything in our power to circumvent it. Like, there is this weird, like, like we trust that it kind of works, but we also try to go around it as much as possible. Well, so it depends it, on which yeah, demographic you're sure. talking about, right? And this is really the heart of my book is the other half, how the other half lives. And mm -hmm. the, for them, law has never been on their side. Sure. It has actually been instrumentalized against them time and again. So it is, see, laws basically preserve power. Sure. And in many ways, that is true. If you look at Brazil, there's like 4,000 okay. laws or something on so many things that by default, you're a criminal, If you, yeah. especially if you're from a low-income setting, mm -hmm. right? If you're in a favela, it's almost like you're born criminal. 
sure. so without even being aware of it because you're bound to break some law and that gives enormous power to people who are running these uh, systems on the side these sort of black gray economies right including like mafia drug sure. lords etc who actually are the actual contenders of shaping these systems like you know on a day to day like providing electricity sure. you know etc governing these places and that we don't quite get you know because we look at the when we're talking about even the tech economy we're talking about formal institutions formal mm. governance not these parallel systems of governance which is by the way much more pervasive much more stronger in most parts of the world so yeah it, sort of i'm trying to think if i want to bring this back or just jump off that point it's it's what would you want to like teach people about of these? I'm gonna, I'm gonna call them soft institutions. Let's say, as just a comparison, let's say the hard institutions are the more formalized ones, and the soft ones are sort of the secondary ones that create. Let's call them naturally, or mm -hmm. however. What What do you think people need to know about how those types of systems work or interact in these different environments? Well, one is I think maybe we should start questioning this whole soft hard dichotomy okay. because the reason is because these systems have been around for a long for the longest time they are the they have sometimes more legitimacy like mm. these informal systems than other systems they completely invisible because markets have treated a lot of low income populations which is half the world right as more pretty much yeah, yeah like almost half the world today is low income populations yeah. but aspiring yeah. right upward upwardly mm. mobile and they've treated them as too high risk. So mm. a lot of them have been ignored or you know, deemed as not customer worthy. Things are changing, of yeah. course, right? And the states have looked at them as like invisible because mm -hmm. technically they don't, they're not citizens. I mean, often because they're stateless or they're refugees or well, they are living in settlements which mm -hmm. they don't need to cater to, pander to. Unless, of course, they want to get votes out of it, yeah. right? And so, you know, given these uh, constraints, you don't even get any services. So it's not like you have an alternative sure. of hard versus soft. So this is the only thing that they experience, right? Which has its, which is, again, very mundane. It's like it has to be very structured, so formal, and very formalized. They actually take taxes. They mm. actually, you know, which is the local sort of mafia yeah. and all. And it's, it, you know, one can frame it as corruption. On the other hand, this is basically the system of payment system that actually helps the circular economy, you know, uh, move forward, particularly in this low end margins, which is a major percentage of these populations. Do, do you, th from coming off an idea that you said, do you, do you think or agree, and one of the things that I'm sort of seeing is that as this lower class is aspiring and, and they are getting wealthier and, and they're going to be more part of the consumer economy, let's say the what we're terming now the, the hard powers or the hard institutions or the more you know official institutions haven't really built the relationships with them and all of a sudden they're being like, oh wait, they're, they're, they're becoming, let's say, uh, the customer profile that we want but they haven't put in the, the legwork. And so to me, it seems like there's this really big opportunity because to be perfectly honest and, and I don't really care, like those people are gonna basically tell them to fuck off because they're like, wait, where were you five years ago, 10 years ago, and we we're in this place, now that we're who you want, all of a sudden you're knocking on our door. And I think to me, it seems like there's this real opportunity if you're either started or whatever to, to grow with that class if you're willing to come in early and, and be with them and build, actually properly build their relationships and don't purely see them as customers for this sort of long-term. Yeah, uh, business I, partners. Absolutely. Like right now, you know, the whole economy is run on this tenet of 
data is a new oil. Mm. And so the moment you realize that data is a competitive edge that is going to make or break your company, yeah. and you're seeing that by sheer number, yeah. then the fact that these people are coming online because of this uh, you know, radical game-changing uh, technologies from mobile phones becoming dirt cheap and almost like 100% penetration rates, even in Namibia, right? Like uh, low-income context you never thought was possible, like say a decade ago. And then you have data plans like Geo, uh, yeah. which like in 2016, radically disrupted the data economy. So now we have, what, data, like one GB for 20 cents in India versus, say, 80 euros in, uh, you know, Europe or like 16 dollars in the US. So with that in mind, they are, of course, so super hungry for these consumers, but absolutely what you're saying is that they can't just come and say, okay, now we're going to just, you know, scrape the shit out of your data and we're going to get wealthy. No, you ha it's, it's a relationship. You have to build a relationship, which means you have to start to understand who, the, who these guys are, what their needs are, and genuinely cater to it, not just you know, so-called indigenize a very generic app onto them and say, oh, great, right? I mean, a great case in point is health apps, okay? Yeah. Aid agencies, it's been their forte to understand these populations. And it has been deeply paternalistic because they believe these populations, of course, need very basic needs, right? So when it comes to sex, it's about you know, the finger wagging, like, oh, yeah. you're going to get HIV AIDS, so we're going to design an app to inform you about that. We, you're going to get raped possibly in these yeah. camps in Africa, so mm -hmm. we're going to inform you about how to cope with that. And so it's usually sex is deviant, sex is bad, and sex is something damaging to these populations, and it's all about that. But if you look at mobile health apps, what is the number one in the West is self-care. And right. why is that interesting is because a num uh, this next billion users, much, uh, much of them, we're talking about almost 40% of them, are young people. They're teenagers who are really, they're so curious about sex. Yeah. I mean, so their first experience of the internet is Pornhub, right? Sure. Pornhub yeah. is really initiating them because of course, like, sex is such a, it's, it's all encompassing any teen, you can just have to remember your teenage years to think that it okay. takes over most of your brain, right? So I, I just, can we take a slight tangent on that? Like, yeah. What do you think the effect is for these populations that Pornhub is their first intro to sex? Like, there is a lot of debates around that, like, whether or not that's a good thing, a bad thing, if it's sort of leading people towards unhealthy views of what sex is? Like, what, what are your thoughts on... on well, firstly, we, you know, for us to have this question of good or bad, we have to also understand what are their choices, right? Yeah. I mean, so you're talking about majority of these communities are very conservative, right? Mm -hmm. they, sex is a taboo subject. You can't even talk about it. In fact, uh, even like printing a woman's name, say, in a conservative community in the Middle East, like Jordan, uh, is, is too much of an exposure. Her okay. name without her father's name, right? We're yeah. talking about on that level. It's like there's sure. so much of guardedness that a woman has a virtue, yeah. and or they're very asexual. Women are asexual, yeah. and men are deviants, right? They could they, they are pot too potent, and they could actually go about raping people. Yeah, yeah. So it's this sort of construct, particularly with the lower classes, right? And so when you have this kind of culture, and particularly deeply punishable culture, particularly for women, where if you even possibly have a date outside of, you know, your, uh, your caste or your uh, religious circles, you could, it could be punishable by death. 
And so given these ridiculously crazy circumstances, Pornhub in some sense is very liberating because, well, it shows you what sex is in all these different ways from gay sex to all kinds of, you know, every possible kind of sex. And people can be all judgmental and morally uh, shocked about how we are promoting that. But on the other hand, if you want it to be a you want it to be genuinely helpful to these populations, we need to provide them genuine alternatives. So if you're going to keep shut about it and we're going to condemn it, I'm sorry, but Pornhub is the best option for them. So, then. so let's let's keep on this. What would you think would be a decent alternative to Pornhub? Like, yeah. what, what what could be something that would be? I mean, it doesn't have to be a decent alternative, but but like, if you had a magic wand and you're like, okay, we have Pornhub and we want to give them a second choice. What would your ideal second choice be? So, you know, one is that a lot of uh, people are saying, how do we control, how do we shape technology, right? How do we sort of moderate it? And my, particularly these innovations and sites that take on these populations, and my take is often the solutions are non-technological. Mm. So a lot of our problems, whether it's fake news to, you know, uh, you know, misogyny online or even revenge porn, and these are the dark sides of pornography, right, is it happens offline, happens within communities, the kinds of digital literacies, the opening mm. up of cultures, I the the legal systems that punish people who do honor killings, right, mm -hmm. which is so pervasive. I mean, this is what matters because if we don't start changing a society on a regular level, because after all, it is uh, it gets reproduced online in many mm -hmm. ways, right? And it's a sort of extension. It's not like an online, offline world, which yeah. doesn't make any sense anymore. But we have to think about coming up with non-technological solutions and building our strength and shifting our cultural you know, perceptions to tackle and really like boost the choices we get online. Because once we do that, we will start thinking in a very imaginative way in you know, showing sexuality. For example, just uh, actually Nordic countries are great at this. It's just like a lot of, well, in some, in <laughs> right. some extent is that they speak, for, see again, it's all relative, right? Yeah. Is like the, the way in which they speak about sex of what is, you know, what is, you know, normal in terms of what's good practice and, how you should like you know protect yourselves but also how you can enjoy sex and somehow we slip that topic enjoyment the joy of sex and i'm talking about for both men and women right i mean isn't that something which is fundamentally human why do we take away the joy out of this equation and uh, you know and why should it be such a taboo thing so I agree that we should have, uh, we should be concerned if Pornhub is the only educator <laughs> and the only initiator, but I still think it's a better alternative than say, you know, com uh, not talking about sex at all and making it such an alien subject that people are completely, these young people are so helpless. And well, it's, it's a starting point. Let me just check, okay. Uh, I'm gonna pull this back because I, I, I was, I, very, very interesting, but I'm going to pull this back a little bit because I'm assuming that this is not exactly what you're super passionate about and teaching young people about sex and all that is not your, your super passion. So let's, let's bring this back probably about 15 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> you were saying, so you, you moved from, from Bangalore to Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. uh, we were talking about the differences, and then you, you said you went from there. I guess now you're in the Netherlands. But what has been sort of the, the, the driver of these moves and, and what, what has been your curiosity and, and Honestly, we haven't really got into it. Besides your book popping up, like what it is you're actually doing 
Mm -hmm. so, can we get some more flavor on that? Absolutely. And by the way, just quick thing, <laughs> sex is very much part of it. Okay. Because, so, you know, uh, uh, because my book, uh, what I noticed, like, for example, I, I went out to do a project, a comparative project across these low-income communities in Brazil, South Africa, and India. And I was really interested in what, how young people perceive privacy and uh, practice privacy on their mobile phones. And I realized that if you want to really understand privacy behaviors and perceptions, you have to understand their romance economies, their sex economies, because yeah. it is completely correlated. And so that's when I started getting involved with uh, the, the notions yeah. of sexuality, sex can, can, online, before right? We, I'm but kind of yes, about, let no, me no, go no, no, back no, no. to... We're, we're diving into that, because yeah. I'm actually I'm really curious. Can you... Two different things. One, explain a little bit more about like what you mean by a, a sex economy, mm -hmm. and, and B, get into a little bit of like... Um, how, let's call it how the sex economy played out in those different ecosystems. So yeah, first, can so you give just a definition for people of course. to understand it? So the sex economy is basically, it has a wider spectrum of anything related to sexual needs, wants, information, desires, and it basically how it gets commodified and gets sort of uh, sustained through this kind of commodification, right? So it's marketized. Um, and that's not such a bad thing. In academia, particularly, markets have a sort of now stigma to it, like, oh my God, it's commercialized, which is basically selling out. And mm -hmm. Uh, when you go into these contexts, the market can actually be a legitimate contender and force against, say, authoritarian regimes. Possibly. Of course, sometimes it can be complicit. But it is a, the only other powerful so-called state-like entity that can have a pushback, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have to keep that in mind. But going back to uh, why I'm emphasizing sex is because if you look at closely at technological uptake, like mobile phone uptake, you look at the first laws, that uh, privacy laws and data protection laws in Brazil, in India, see what triggered these laws. It was often a revenge porn case in like uh, uh, Julia Rebecca in uh, 2014 in Brazil. It was a young girl who, got, who did a sort of a, a gang sort of sex tape and it went online and she felt so ashamed so she killed herself and wrote an apology letter to her family. And that uh, led to parents going online and saying, we need to regulate the internet. Mm -hmm. So it's usually, and same thing in India, same thing in the Middle East, sex online is such a huge issue because it brings in the whole mor morality of where's our society, there's sort of a, a moral panic about where's, where's uh, this going for our youth, right, the next mm -hmm. generation, which pushes policymakers, tech companies, and across board to say, okay, we need to be accountable to what is happening with the data, what's happening to regulations, mm -hmm. who's moderating the data, uh, how do we like uh, flag content which is pornographic and all that. So I found that that was what was very interesting because I didn't actually seek for that, mm -hmm. but it came to me, right? And that's a typical, and going back to what am I really doing, mm. is I'm a digital anthropologist, which really means is that I've spent more than a decade trying to understand how people understand and use, you know, digital technologies at its most basic level, right? And my demographic focus has been low-income communities, like in favelas, and in, you know, in Brazil, India, South Africa, across, outside the West, because... I was very curious to what extent are they like so-called us, right? The mm -hmm. normative template. We have a sort of uh, uh, understanding of a typical user, which is, you know, un 
the fact is often white male and middle class and that is we have this sort of evidence more and more and for a variety of reasons from silicon valley to like even wikipedia right we the kind of the luxury of time where you yeah. can edit so there's a host of like evidence which is pointed to the fact including medical trials mm -hmm. where something like 70% are of this demographic so it's a sort of a my book is really a pushback to saying let's first de-exoticize who these people are mm -hmm. and let's genuinely instead of trying to just like rape their data out of them yeah. which is not going to get very far is yeah. let's see as you bring up how we can genuinely partner with them by really understanding what's actually happening at a ground level and go from there. Uh, anyways, I think I was going to jump into this because this is one thought in my head. Was something that you mentioned when something that we brought up in an earlier episode is that we talked about how the porn industry is often a big driver for tech, think of things like the VCR and these types of things, VR is another great example, but you're saying it's also a driver for policy, essentially, and, and I thought that that's a really interesting thing. That it's, it's like porn for policy, you know, that's going to be my thing, <laughs> you know, thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly, I want to have t-shirts on it, we make it happen, so. uh, I mean, so we now have a media company, and we're going to be doing that kind of stuff, so so let's talk after, and yeah. then we can set up this porn for policy. Uh, yeah, actually, you know, uh, I was being facetious, but actually, I was, uh, I'm literally writing about AI for good, and I'm sort of doing a whole pushback on that because that's going to be my next book okay. and uh, because there's this whole movement and I'm literally actually advocating porn for good because okay. and I know in a sense because you know it really is pushing that frontier particularly because of this I am so tired of this deep moral you know drive particularly in global south you know that women and sex are so deeply yeah. entwined in a very dark manner I mean you read this time and again, and this idea of this woman's virtue getting, you know, devastated online because of the deep fakes. Like you yeah. see one, you know. Yeah. So talk about solutionism, right? Mm -hmm. People are like, well, oh my God, her a video of her, a fake video of X person in the community got leaked online, or is threatened to be leaked online unless you, and this is a unless you pay a amount, right? So this is a industry, right? Right yeah. now. And so, and then the parents uh, chalk out some money and then the video is given. But so then the policy is created how to stop that, right? Yeah. It's a more about how to counter it. Technology companies have to figure out how to block that, right? Yeah. Which is going to be really hard. Rather than think about, so what? Yeah. So fucking what? So yeah. I have my naked body. And you know, you see sometimes women are actually owning up to it where, um, you know, there's this threat that, oh, I'm going to show a naked photo of you and I'm going to send it on your Twitter feed. And so the woman just says, oh, yeah, you want to show that? This is my photo. And she sends it off. I mean, too. you see uh, Whitney Cummings right. did that recently. That's yeah, it. Yeah, I was thinking yeah. about her, yeah. right? And that's well, what I mean is take ownership. It's a body. It's a, It's just flesh and blood. And whatever. Sex is such a norm. Everyone does it. It's not that we are like doing it with an animals. I know. Okay. Well, you know. <laughs> some some people are. But yeah, some, some people, people are. are. What I'm saying is that we're talking about regular generic sex, and that is just something but, so. But, but hold on. Know. At least from my point of view, I don't necessarily believe there is any such thing as regular generic sex. I think I think it's more of, of a matter of like. If you're willing to have a partner, and that partner agrees to whatever it is that you, the two of you want to do, then go for it. Like, 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 like. I what, think as long as it's what I'm saying is absolutely. You know. I mean, see, it, it, 
I but actually I, but have I think very sort little... of the idea of regular is, is Absol- just... It, absolutely. You're, no, you're right. Actually, uh, one should not even have that as a term. What I meant is to, when I say regular, is to make sex part of our everyday norm. Like, that mm-hmm. this is, which is of course true. I'm stating such an obvious thing, right? <laughs> but it's as if it doesn't happen. It doesn't take place, right? Look, anyway, but we are definitely deviating from the whole thing. But no, whatever. Yeah, but <laughs> you haven't I mean, listened to the show enough. Like, so, so this, this is what happens. <laughs> no, but I mean, it, it totally is something that, you know, is, is taking over in a way that is creating so many institutions, policy, and you know, the fact is, there's a limit to how much technology can do, okay? AI, I don't believe there can be the smartest AI to detect these deep fakes necessarily or to be able to keep up with that because, you know, as it innovates, people innovate. I mean, mm-hmm. we, keep, we should not underestimate the force of people, especially when motivated by sex and the yes. sex industry, right? And so, I mean, like, what's happened in India? Uh, I mean, they they were for, they had to take down a number of sites, or like Geo when they yeah. came up with their phone, they took down 800 and something sites, uh, which were pornographic related. Literally, the very next day, it came back, right? Of course it will. It's just not possible because people have high motivation. So it really is comes down to what are people most motivated by? Why are they most motivated mm-hmm. motivated by them? And uh, and then go from there. Right? Do Do you think like, one of the things around this conversation that always gets me is that let's call it the the people in power and the people who want to maintain power structures see that sex is such a powerful tool. And so they try to control it in such a way as a way to essentially control the masses. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I feel like the, you see that sort of time and time again, that the, the more controlling regimes, it doesn't necessarily have to be dictatorships, but the more controlling regimes or societies tend to be the most sexually repressive. Be- because it tends to be, it, because it's such a primary driver. Um, I don't know, that just sort of, sort of, my yeah, I mean, and it's it. a form. I mean, all we have to do is look at the history of religion, mm-hmm. right? How did religion take off? Is firstly to make something deeply natural unnatural, and then when you do something like that, you feel tremendously guilty, mm-hmm. and then when you feel guilty, you have a solutionism to mm-hmm. that guilt, which is basically, you know, mm-hmm. a variety of other religious sort of outlets of, uh, you know, forgiveness or you know, repentance, etc. And so it's it's one of the oldest tricks in the book is denaturalize the natural, and then we will, of course, as a human species, feel deeply frustrated. But we will always feel that if it's something wrong, and we've been told it's wrong, and we want to correct it, then we will do anything possible so we can feel at peace. But we will never feel we're, we're like this never-ending customer, right? <laughs> sure. For this, because we will never reach that point where we, we, we will feel at peace because we are doing something which is actually normal sure. so yeah do, do you have this um i don't i don't know I, I have a biology background and one of the things that that i think about a lot is is that i kind of fundamentally believe us as human beings are the combination of our two closest animal relatives and i think we're biologically like bonobos but socially like chimpanzees and and i and i feel like we, we're at this like constant internal war of the fact that, and for people who like aren't really aware, bonobos are essentially this sort of free love uh, group, but are genetically identical to chimpanzees who are very warlike and territorial. And I just kind of feel like we have these, we're the mix of both. 
and our biology is constantly battling our social structure from these two sides and it's it's these clashes which are causing these types of things to exist. I don't know, that's how I've conceptualized. I don't know if that well, makes I sense mean, or you've thought of it in this way or... Well, I know one thing is that, of course, the, you know, the beauty of uh, the human species is we come with a lot of diversity to the table, mm. you know, and culture itself, which is basically my forte, right? I mean, mm. I... Why do, an anthropologist, basically, at heart, is you are fascinated by not only how people do what they do, but the fact that they do things differently. Who wants everyone yeah. to behave alike, right? I love the fact that we are so diverse in our expressions, our behaviors, and and it, it is of course influenced by our histories, our you know current day realities, the weather, the mm. food around us, and a variety of things. And I think if we can celebrate that difference, to appreciate that difference, including sexual needs mm -hmm. and wants, you know, and to not sort of uh, polarized based on that. Because I, I do understand there's no such thing as an indiscriminate public. I do understand the need to be gated, right? Mm -hmm. Because you can't com uh, create a community with everybody. It is often based on a certain exclusivity. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to feel at home, for example, sure. but including something as like a WhatsApp group, right? Yeah. That's not, it doesn't, it's not either or though. Right. Sure. So we are we are capable of being a member of multiple kinds of communities and practices, which can be inherently contradictory too. Sure. Because mm. we are capable of different kinds of personalities and we play different roles in different contexts. And I think once we understand that, we you know, and including companies and the governments, and to be able to give us a amount of enough of choice and freedoms as long as we're not infringing on the other, then we will have a vibrant society, you know, which is not morally repressive or sort of paternalistic in a way which has a particular template that is ready to be exported yeah. to the rest of the world, right? And as if we have this preconception of what people do, and particularly for low-income people, because I don't you know, you, you've heard this even in the US Congress, they're like, what do these poor people need smartphones for, right? You hear yeah. this so often. It's like, why do they have smartphones? Then they clearly they don't need welfare and all that. You know, or refugees. Why are these refugees coming with a smartphone? And you know. But I feel like the response to that is like, well, why do you need a smartphone? Like, like, <laughs> exactly. like, 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 yeah, for all the reasons you need a smartphone, they need one too. Like, like it's, it's right. Like, it's just absolutely. That. And and people, you know, and there's a, even more alarming when people are using a lot of their data for non-instrumental purposes, which is what my book is like. People panic about it. Governments panic. What? They're not trying to check for jobs online or healthcare for you know or or farmers to check crop prices. So why is that happening? And. And the fact is, but because if you're well off, sure, you can spend most of your time binging on Netflix because you're a contributing member to society. You are abdicated from that kind of responsibility. But no, if you are low income, you better be. And what we need to do is turn the pyramid around and realize that these, like the leisure economy, the online leisure economy is a everyday coping mechanism because it is extraordinarily hard to be stuck in these mindless like dehumanizing jobs True. whether you're wo working in a factory in Am you know for the yeah. amazon uh, company or you know any kind of like you're, you're stuck in a deeply routinized p position that it reminds you that you're human and i think that's mm -hmm. really fundamentally what the book's about you know oh, that's really interesting because i think one of the i think interesting challenges we're facing right now is that historically we needed people let's say, to be a, a proper member of society. We need people to be productive. But in this day and age, we don't need people to be productive anymore. 
I would say primarily what we need for most people in society with the way society is currently constructed and with the impact movement, we can argue this a little bit. Honestly, we mostly need people to consume things. And I think there's this really interesting thing of we're not at a point where we can say like, okay, you can just consume without producing, being a producer, but we don't actually need people to produce. Like we produce well more than we ever need at this point, And then we're, we're automating it and so on and so forth. So there's, there's this disconnect there. And I think there's a lot of struggles, in my opinion, around this disconnect of like, we don't feel like we can allow people to consume without producing, but we don't need to, them to produce anymore. So they're kind of stuck in this, this kind of unnecessary form of labor. Yeah, I mean, see, I mean, it is a good point you're bringing up about the relationship between consumption and production because it has often been so naturalized that one leads to the other, right? Like, it's almost like this causal effect when and, and related, right? And uh, so if you look at the tech economy, it's like we're not this element of being conscious of our production itself is an interesting element because if you're producing data as default, right, we're not... We don't know where our data is being used, for what purposes. Sure. It's not like we have a vision of what that data is going to do, right? And yet, in our acts of consumption, we are producing by default, right? And so we become product producers by default, and that's not how it was conceptualized in the past, where it was all about, you know, virtue. There's a certain virtue about being a producer, right? Like the, 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 the sweat and toil, which yeah. makes you a real man kind of thing. And that's not the case in this digital economy as much. And But then there is a shift. There's this whole, like, almost um, obsession about innovation, right? Mm -hmm. The whole digital in, uh, entrepreneurial uh, sort of take. We need another app. Mm -hmm. I mean, one in 10,000 apps succeed. Sure. That is crazy, and yet we are pushing more and more. Yeah, we need another for, one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I mean, there is this, and, and, and by the way, I, I don't, I mean, don't get me wrong, I am all for production for sake of production. It's like a labor of love, right? Yeah. Like, if you want to produce an app, go for it. If it, it, it's full of, you know, something that you have a vision, you're passionate about, just go for it, right? But let's not expect it's going to transform the world radically. Maybe, and even if it fails, there is something beautiful about failure in a sense, but it depends on who, at what cost. Sure. And what I, I have a huge beef against is that technology companies are using low-income communities as their live laboratories. They're experimenting on this. So, and the thing is, the app, a production of an app, right? Or say, for example, the one laptop per child, which is we're yeah. talking about like a, a, you know, a decade ago by Nicholas Negroponte, it came at the cost of an annual budget for a child's education, like in by from the government. So the government, uh, an, a typical African government had a choice between, I have $100 allocated for this child for the year, I either spend that on the laptop, the hardware, or pay teachers, get a school, books, etc. And they chose the laptop, okay. and the laptops broke down within a few days, sometimes weeks, and never got repaired. Yeah, and sure. it basically was playing Russian roulette on these kids' education. Okay. So what I'm saying is that if we have the options, like I'm a well-off person, it's fine. Like a lot of us are like, okay, so this app is not doing well. We, we will survive, right? Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's also not going to kill those customers or whatever. Yeah. They, they can make do. It's yeah. not like you were, you know, yeah. you were the oh, answer no. It didn't to download life. and it exactly. was like, yeah, I, I can't fine. eat today. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whereas in these contexts, it comes at such devastating costs. And I want that honesty to be upfront. Mm -hmm. And I want uh, these companies, I want governments to be morally accountable to these demographics when they make these choices because they're making serious choices which will make or break their lives. I mean, 
it, it is a testament that these populations have such deep resilience in spite of these policies, you know? And yeah, so that is definitely part of it is I do not, you know, my book is not about pure victimization, but really celebrating their resiliences in spite of all these, you know, um, massive in, in insurgencies against them and their rights. So. Okay, I think that's... I don't know if we touched on everything we need to, and I think we'll definitely yeah. have to have you back on because this is great, and I think we could talk for hours. Yeah, uh, yeah but I think we fun. need to talk for today. Yeah, um, and, and best of luck with you. Don't get killed because of this. So. <laughs> Don't get killed. This. Yeah. I think we'll be fine. Uh, depending on where we where we release this and yeah. uh, what countries we go to, we'll, we might have some issues. But uh, as far as I know, we're not in any of the sexually repressive <laughs> ones. Uh, but we'll see. Uh, anyways, thank you guys so much, and that's us for the segment. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Love the Problem podcast. Like before, we're here at Tech Festival doing a special edition. I'm sitting here with Clive Thompson, who's an author. Uh, his newest book is Coders. Very excited to sit down with him. Um, but let's just jump right in with Clive. Clive, uh, thank you for sitting down with me. And can you just let people know a little bit about yourself, your background, getting sort of deep into your, your original history and kind of going from there? Sure, yeah. So um, I'm a technology and science journalist, and, and I write about uh, how technology and science affect everyday life. Um, but I kind of got interested in this, really, I would say, as a little kid, right? Like, I was a nerdy kid back in the 70s and 80s when computers were just starting to leak into everyday life. Like, you know, um, uh, I'm kind of that generation of kid that got their hands on, like, the Commodore 64 that you okay. plug into a TV. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Plug it into a TV, yeah. Quick question, like, how, how did you get your hands on that? Did you just, like, find yeah. out about it and yeah. then be like, Mom and Dad, I really want this? Or did they, <laughs> did they like, oh, this, there's this cool new thing called the computer. Yeah. We want to give it to you. Like, how, how did... It, it, it came to me because... Um, uh, a, a couple, a couple of pathways. One is that uh, schools. I, I, I grew up in Canada, and we had a pretty good, well-funded school system. So they actually started buying, like they would have like one computer for the school, uh, like a, a Commodore PET computer. And I sat down to that thing, and I was just, oh my god, this is so much fun typing these little commands in BASIC. Uh, and then at the same time, you know, there was a lot of other nerdy kids, and some of them had bought like, you know, like home game systems like the Atari 2600. Can I ask you one question before yeah. we, oh, yeah, it sounds sure. like we're away from that. I'm really curious, so so one sort of, just to get a sense, how big was your school and how did they like decide yeah, yeah, how to yeah. distribute the use of this one right. computer and this new tech, like that seems really interesting to me. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a big school, it was a, it was a middle school. Um, I guess there was probably no more than uh, 400 kids there. Um, and they had a quote-unquote computer lab that had like four or five of these things in there. And so they would have computer classes where you came in and did stuff, but they would also have downtime. And if you were one of the nerdy kids that wanted to go in for half an hour and muck around on it, you kind of could just do whatever you wanted. And <laughs> okay. this was also the age when they had like, you know, com computer magazines mm -hmm. where they would print like, most of the magazine was just, there'd be reviews of hardware, sure, but then the rest of it was all just programs, like, you know, pages and pages of basic. Here's a Hangman game, here's an Asteroids game, and you had to type, you know, seven pages of code in without making a single mistake to get it to work, you know? And so this was my introduction to, to, to coding. You asked, you know, you know, did my parents buy me a computer? I asked for one. <laughs> okay. My father was a civil engineer, and he, he loved 
the whole computer thing. He thought it was super interesting. But my mother uh, basically said, no, he's just going to sit around playing games and he'll never graduate and everything, <laughs> everything will was, go to hell, basically. Uh, just a good question. So, you, I mean, it sounds like, you know, you're in like Gen 1 of computers. And this concern about like playing video games all day yeah. and never graduating yeah. still existed all the way back. Absolutely, that's, that's really funny to me. Well, that it, keep it, in it, mind that like the context for this was, you know, I didn't have a home game system, and all I had was the arcades where mm -hmm. you went and played, you know, Pac-Man and 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 Dig Dug, uh, and you vanish with like a roll of quarters and come back five hours later. So. The, I already had a known proclivity for vanishing for hours <laughs> okay. into video games. So, like her, 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 her concern was not didn't come out of nowhere. But, but it, you, you are correct that like you know anytime technology is dangled in front of kids, uh, there is an immediate moral concern that this mm -hmm. will deform their life prospects. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's that's one thing. It's kind of jumping off that point. That's one thing that's really really interesting to me because, to some extent, it's almost as if if the kids actually get more comfortable and dive into it, they're mm -hmm. actually probably better off for the future yeah, than yeah. otherwise. Um, and from other shows, we, we talked about sort of how the standard education system is, is not training people for the future, and, and some of this tech probably would be. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's a kind of funny backwards I agree. way of thinking. And, and also, I would say that there was something particularly magical about the, the period that I blundered into computers, which is that uh, I got my hands on computers when they still didn't have a big software ecosystem. So the only way you could get that computer to do something interesting was by programming it. Like there mm -hmm. was no buying software. <laughs> like when you turned it on, there was a blinking cursor saying ready. And that was the guts of the computer saying, I, I await your commands, right? You know? <laughs> and, and when you bought the computer, you know, if you bought like a VIC-20, it came shipped with like a 300-page manual on how to program it because they, they expected that the consumer was also a producer of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so in a weird way, the problem we've got ourselves into is that because software has become very important mm -hmm. and because they wanted to make it user-friendly for a lot of people, um, all those computers have become sort of glassed-in uh, mm -hmm. boxes that you're not... You're, you're, in fact, they actually work very hard to make sure that you can't get in there and tinker with it. Mm -hmm. And this has become a problem, I think, for the, the following generations of kids in that they... You know, they were not just encouraged, wildly encouraged, promiscuously encouraged, as I was, to tinker around in the mm -hmm. machine and get it to do something you wanted to do, something that the creators of the machine maybe could never have predicted, right? Mm -hmm. that, is a, that is a radical and delightful and empowering feeling. It's very different from being handed the Apple App Store and say, well, download what you want and play with it, but, like, that's as far as it goes. Sure. So I'm a big fan of anything that gives kids... Uh, that sort of ability to pull back the hood, mess around, mm -hmm. get in trouble, screw things up, you know, build weird things. Um, I, I do think there's more of that, like, happening now. Like, yeah, mm -hmm. you definitely see a lot of, like, teachers and mm -hmm. after-school hacker clubs and people making little devices, gizmos designed to give kids that, that flavor of kind of misbehaving with the machine, you know? No, that's, I mean, that's really super interesting. And I, I... I don't know why, but it gave me the the image of, of sort of you know when you look back at the fifties, everyone almost had their own car. Totally, right, right. And they, oh, they, they no, pull no, it and they pull under the end again, and this is going there, and yet yeah. somehow, yeah, I do agree with you. It seems like there, something was lost at some point where we said, no, no, you can't, you can't look under the hood and, anymore. And it's, it's, and actually, the car thing is 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 a is a great analogy because cars, the same thing has happened to cars, which is that if you open up a car now, mm -hmm. it's just this this completely 
sealed in box run by software mm -hmm. that often you are by law forbidden to tinker with, right? So mm -hmm. if you buy a car, not only is it hard to fix it, you might not be able to fix it, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas you open up a Chevy from 1967, it's like, okay, the whole thing's there. <laughs> and it's like, you know, you could fix whatever you need with like paper clips and a wrench, <laughs> you know? Um, and so that there was, I think there was something empowering about cars in the mm -hmm. 60s and 70s, and there was something empowering about computers in the uh, in the early 80s uh, in a way that is, is is valuable and worth recapturing. I will say, I will say the one the one nice thing about computer culture is that it feels like they sort of ebb and flow in terms of the you know the ease of on ramps. Like, mm -hmm. um, for example, like pr no more than 10 years after I'm messing around with the Commodore 64. Yeah. You start to get Microsoft uh, producing Windows, and you and, sure. you and you got Apple. You know, with what you see is what you get, sure. and those and so they started hiding the guts of the computers away from the user, and they just saying, you know, we want you to point and click. And that was kind of the beginning of the disempowering of the average person. But you know, at the same time, the late '90s, the web's coming around, yeah. and the web was you know a really nice open system because again, if you're a nerdy kid, you're looking at a web page. And there's like view yeah. source, huh? What's that? You click on that. Holy Moses! They're <laughs> just showing me the code, yeah. the HTML of how this page is made. And you're like, I can cut and paste that and make the exact same page. I can tinker with it, change the colors. And so the web had a, the early web had a lot of that kind of go in there and tinker and get in trouble feeling to it. So I, I think the nice thing about the computer culture is there's always the door is closed, but other ones open up. And it's just a matter of always continuing to find doors and throwing them open. OK, from, from that point, out of curiosity, and this is definitely speculative. Yeah. Um, what do you think the next thing is? Like, yeah, like, exactly. What, what's, what, yeah. What, what's the next hood that we're pulling open? And do you think it's in I don't know. I had a thought from a different direction that we maybe can dive to in a second. Is, is it in computers? Is it somewhere else? Yeah, uh, yeah. What, what do you think is the next thing that... Because I, I don't think this curiosity will ever go away. No, it won't. So it needs to show up somewhere. It shows somewhere. Uh, one place we've recently seen it open up uh, is in Minecraft, right? Okay. So, like, Minecraft is... You know, you might think of it, if you haven't played it, as just a game. You know, mm -hmm. it's just you're going in there and you're building stuff with with blocks or maybe going onto a server and you're playing, like, kind of like a blocky paintball game with friends. Um, but Minecraft is, like is this wildly open sandbox thing. Like, so you can use it to just build stuff, and that's pretty cool. Uh, you can use it also as like a, essentially a programming lab, because there's, there's all these different little languagey things built into it. Like you can write little commands to automatically create structures, and suddenly you're chaining commands together. It's very much like programming. There's actually a wiring system. Like if you wanted to like, hey, I wanna, when I walk into my house, I wanna flick a switch and have a light come on. There's like, you can build little switches with wiring that goes to light. Uh, and, um, and so I would start talking to kids that were mm -hmm. building these complicated things. And I realized that they were learning the exact same logic and the exact same way of thinking through a program that I had learned with a Commodore 64 30 years earlier. Huh. And, um, and then on top of that, there's, it's an ecosystem for showing things you've made to other people, right? Sure. So like, which is the key thing. Uh, if you want a creative technological ecosystem, it has to not just be open for tinkering. You have to be able to take it and go, hey dude, here, load this hangman game on your Commodore 64 that I made. It's going to blow your yeah. mind, you know? And that's what, that's what happens with Minecraft. People put stuff online, or they do a video cast showing that mm -hmm. stuff, mm -hmm. um, or they make up a server and invite their friends on, and they're all messing around with stuff. In fact, actually, one of the things that's interesting about servers and Minecraft is that 
it's kids reinventing social networking on their own terms. Because they'll basically sure. say, like, okay, I'm gonna, here's my world. I'm going to invite people in. Uh, oh, no, my friend Johnny blew up everything I created. Okay, so I have to make some rules. I'm going to download these add-ons that create property rights where you can't destroy something <laughs> I've created unless I let you, right? So kids have started, like, you, you talk to these 13-year-old you know, kids, and they have this incredibly complicated way of thinking about access rights, permissions, and, and, and they will sit around arguing about it mm -hmm. for like weeks. <laughs> I, 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 I once chatted with this guy, he, he, he studied this. He studied kids and the social worlds they build in Minecraft. And he was kind of blown away because he said, look, these are 14 year old, you know, he was studying 14 year old boys. He's like, these are like what you would socially, some of the worst people on the planet, you know, like uh, <laughs> in, terms of, in terms of griefing each other. And yet they're having these scholarly conversations going on for weeks about how to manage um, communal behavior that literally feels like they're writing the Constitution for a, for a, for a new America. Yeah. So to me, like, often you ask, wh wh what's the new thing? The new thing is always something that adults can't figure out that seems stupid and silly. And that's where the creativity is happening. And so mm -hmm. Minecraft is one of those worlds. Very, that, very interesting. That's really, really, that's really, really cool. And it's one of those things, sort of maybe closing on this point before just going around. I always find it really interesting because I got into education for a while that, and honestly, almost no pun intended, that how much we handle kids with kids' gloves and how much that's, that's really, in a lot of ways, unnecessary. Absolutely. And that they're su yeah. superly capable beings totally. of doing all these complex mm -hmm. concepts and stuff. If you give them, let's say, the right forum or yep. environment to, to support that. And, and, and leave them alone. And leave them alone. Uh, yeah, let, let, them, let them do their stuff. When they get in a conflict, let them resolve it. Yeah. Yeah. And then they will, generally speaking, more or less, be able, yep. Absolutely. Be able to deal with it themselves and whatnot. And it's, it's kind of when you try to control them too much is when you start having the problems. Well, here's a funny story. When I was researching Minecraft, I chatted with this guy. Um, he was somewhere in upstate New York. It was a library. And they had decided to run their own Minecraft server that uh, you know, could host up to like 1,000 players at once. And, the, and it, basically the rule was you had to have a library card to use it. So this is mm -hmm. a great way to get kids to come yeah. and get a library card. <laughs> and it turns out that, 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 that you know, they would get their library card, they'd, go, they'd come in to play you know, Minecraft on the, on the nice fast computers and the fast network, and they, then they'd just walk out with three books. And they, these kids that had not actually been inside the mm. library in years. Brilliant. Yeah. Anyway, so the guy was telling me that like, his job suddenly became managing the server. You know, so he had to like and <laughs> the unintended consequence. The unintended consequence. Yeah, I'm now a librarian who runs a server, and so uh, there. Are, and so he would also get emails from the kids about about stuff that was going on on the server, griefing, right? And he, and he's going, he's going, but you know, very frequently this is the curve. He would not check his email overnight. And he'd wake up in the morning and there's like 30 messages, and the first one is. You know, Mr. So-and-so, uh, Johnny came in and blew up, uh, you know, the, uh, the sheep farm that I made. Uh, and then, like, and then it escalates. The next five messages are, like, worse and worse and more stuff, worse stuff. And the last message is, oh, ignore that. We figured it all out. It's cool. Uh, <laughs> like, 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 inevitably, they, like, they, they just, they, they, they got, they sat down and they figured out, all right, so, you know, here's how we're going to behave, you know, like, you know. Um, so, it, like, over and over again. And so, like, he, he at first he thought, Oh God, I'm going to be negotiating these disputes all the damn time. But no, you know, they, they just, they did it on their own, man. Like if you leave them alone, uh, they, they figure out their society. But, but I think, I think also too, is it's for whatever reason we've, we've instilled into children, like, oh, you need to come to adults and they'll do it for you and da, da, da. So they automatically think like, oh, there's this authority that's going to solve our problems. Yeah. And then if you actually don't do that, then they just figure, oh, we just 
Let's do this ourselves. Well, you know, this, 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 is, this is the other nice thing about Minecraft. Um, so Mini Ito is this uh, academic who's been studying technology and its effect on people really since the 90s. She's brilliant. And uh, she got interested like five or six years ago in Minecraft and started running like a, a, like a, a summer camp where kids would just log on from all around the world and they would build stuff together and they'd learn some of the programming languages and they'd like take their skills up a notch. Uh, and she said something very smart to me. She said, the thing that I like about Minecraft is that it's actually frequently pretty broken and janky. Like, <laughs> like they're constantly pushing out, you know, new revs and um, the new, new, a new version will come out that actually breaks all the stuff you built like last week or it's crashing and you can't figure it out. And you have to just cope and deal with it yourself. Like, 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 and she, and she's like, she's like, that's actually, that's resilience, right? When you're like, when you, when you, when stuff is just breaking, like there's no one to complain to. And she goes, it's very interesting. Cause like the, you know, kids wind up having a sense of self-reliance in that compared to, you know, when one of the app breaks on their iPhone, it's like, well, Apple, Apple, you have to fix this for me, you know, because of course they can't, right? They have no yeah. agency inside, yeah. inside the, the Apple uh, ecosystem, but inside the Minecraft ecosystem, stuff's breaking all the time, but it's just up to them to go back in and figure out how to, you know, knock it upside the head again, unplug it, plug it in again. Okay, revert to a <laughs> former early version of Minecraft, go on the forums. Has, has anyone seen this problem before? Can anyone help me love, out? Not you know? that I was in your era, but I was a little bit later in sort of the old NES areas, you know, you, you take it out, you blow it yeah, yeah, <laughs> blow exactly. the dust yeah. and, and, and all that kind of totally, stuff. Totally, totally, yeah, yeah. And and yeah. and the reliance upon your community to figure things out, like just go and ask other other peers, right? Like that's mm -hmm. that's this is what you know, this is what participating society is actually like, and this is what you know open technology at its best really offers. Interesting. I think it's a good wrap up of that. Let's bring this back a little bit and, and getting back into your story. So sure. we're talking about you got super into technology. Yep. Let's jump ahead a few years. So like what ended up getting you into like writing about writing it about and, it, and yeah. being a journalist and, and so on? Well, in a weird way, the fact that my mother refused to buy me a computer uh, <laughs> was probably important because if she had got me a computer, I would have probably just been a programmer, like without yeah. question. I, I would have been one of those people that just, because there was one summer mm -hmm. when my, my, my friend's father lent me his VIC-20, mm -hmm. and for three months I basically coded from eight in the morning till midnight. And like, like I was just super addicted to it. You do you know? think, just before we go back, and this is gonna be a yeah. slight tangent, do you think, let's say in the alternative universe where, where, you, where you're a coder, yep. like is that something you think you would have been perfectly happy doing or whatever, or do you like being like on the, like how? I think, I think yes, I think I would have loved it, uh, I think I, I might have even had a really great life financially because th that <laughs> better than being a journalist. Well, because, yeah, because, I mean, you got to realize the early the early '80s people that just stumbled into coding back then had no idea that it was about to become wildly yeah. valuable, and all the people that built all that stuff in the '90s, like email browsers, they all came of age on the on those computers. So yeah, I think actually probably it's very easy to see knowing what I know about myself that. I would have had a whole career. That I, I, the only thing is, I might have been a, an asshole. Uh, um, <laughs> okay. Because you know, I, I, there was there were some good things about becoming a writer and, and and getting a broad view of the world that a lot of coders don't have. Anyway, the point being, because we didn't get a computer, I, 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 I never went as deep into coding as I as I could have. Uh, I was also a very, you know, writerly kid. I loved reading. I loved writing stories and stuff. And, and in high school, I decided, I think I want to be a journalist. Um, so I went do, off. Do, to, do you have a sense of, like, what, what made that? Yeah, yeah, like, what was the light bulb going off? Or? Yeah, I, it's because I loved, as my, I loved coding, but I loved writing also. But I also couldn't really figure out, like, when I, I didn't see any route to being, like, a novelist. Like, I couldn't figure out how you did that. But I could see how you 
did being a journalist. Like there was mm -hmm. a job out there, you could go and get it, you know? And so I said, well, I want to train myself so that I could do that for a living. That seems like fun. Um, and uh, I didn't want to go to journalism school because I, I had this idea that you would, you'd sort of, you wouldn't learn anything about the world. Like you'd learn how to be a journalist, but you'd be, you know, ignorant in every other way. Um, no, no shade on no, actual, no, 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 yeah, on, on any J school students out there, I apologize in advance. But for, I feel like uh, that could be said for almost every I think formal it, type of education that, that's out You are there. correct. And the good journalism schools actually do have very big breadth requirements. So you, you get you get kind of a good liberal arts education there too. And so I went, I, basically what I decided I would do is I would go to uh, go to college and study something and I would just do campus journalism. That's what I did. Went, the, went to the University of Toronto, studied English and political science, but I worked on all the campus papers, including like working, taking one year off full time to be the, the paid news editor of, the, of the, the campus newspaper, the Varsity. And I graduated basically, you know, being a pretty well-trained journalist, right? Um, and what happened was that I graduated and for the first, the first year or two was pretty rough because there, there was, there was a bit of a recession in Canada. There wasn't really, they weren't hiring any new journalists. They hadn't hired anyone new at the, at the Toronto Star or the Globe and Mail in 10 years. So there was wow. nothing. So I, I did all sorts of other stuff. I was a street musician. Uh, <laughs> okay. I, I, uh, I worked for the League of Canadian Poets. Uh, I was- <laughs> can, a, can I ask a really, what, what is the, because I've never heard of that, what is the League of Canadian Poets? It's, it's an organization that, that um, supports Canadian poetry. We, um, uh, the main thing it does is it, it, it has a couple of these big grants from government agencies that helps pay for poetry readings. So okay. our, we, I would organize funding for a tour of a book of poetry to bring another one, brought poets into schools in Ontario. Um, yeah, yeah I, I'd been involved in literary journalism, so I knew a lot about you know the whole kind of literary scene in Canada. It was a fun, fun job. Uh, um, met a lot of people, read a lot of poetry, uh, read a lot of extraordinarily bad Canadian poetry. Um, <laughs> developed sort of an affection for bad poetry. I still, I still, I still mostly read poetry. It's interesting. I don't and, read novels. And, and I read the bad stuff. Is, is is what you have the well in a weird way. The thing about poetry <laughs> is that the quality control is extremely low. Uh, so most poetry is terrible, even by good poets. Uh, so when you read it, and, I, and I, again, to these days I mostly read nonfiction and poetry. I don't really read novels. And I like the poetry because it's like panning for gold. It's like, it's bad, 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 bad. And then one comes along that's so good um, that it's like you just injected heroin randomly <laughs> into your system. And the, the, so, so on the one hand, it's like a slog, but the rewards are ecstatic in a way that no other form of literature is. So anyway, that's it on poetry. The point being, um, <laughs> I, I did that, and then I finally decided, I broke down and said, well, I'll go to journalism school and see if I can hack my way into the industry. I did one year at Ryerson uh, up in Toronto, hated it. Uh, sorry, Ryerson, I know you're better now. Uh, didn't like it back then. <laughs> uh, dropped out after one year and then decided I would freelance, which is a you know, fancy way of saying no one will hire me, uh, uh, but I'm a journalist. And I started just writing freelance articles for uh, you know, uh, city weeklies and any yeah. weird thing that would pay me a little bit of money, uh, made very little money. But around that time, this is around 95, um, that was the beginnings of the mainstream explosion of the internet, right? Sure. Like Netscape's released and mm -hmm. you can surf the web. Yeah. And so people started becoming dimly aware that this, this weird earthquake was, was rumbling. And I was, you know, a nerd and a writer, so I was sort of, it was, it was a sweet spot for me. The, mm -hmm. the boomers were all convinced that this internet stuff was bullshit. Um, <laughs> but they needed someone to write about it. And so they needed and someone that was, that was interested in writing 4,000 word articles about, you know, early <laughs> websites. Uh, I was in the right place at the right time, you know? Uh, that's really, it's really, really funny because I just imagine you almost like a lighthouse in this, 
in this yeah. know, landscape of yeah. like, people who are just like, oh, this is garbage. Like, we're not going to do yeah, it. And yeah, they're yeah. like, oh, no, like, I'm super into this. Like, oh, yeah. I'll, I'll write about that all day long. And, like, and, no, totally. And I, and I was like, <laughs> I've been thinking about this for, like, you know, already for 15 years. I mean, I was pondering chatbots and yeah. databases in, like, the, in the 80s when I was building yeah. them myself. And I was on BBSs, like, where you, you would dial up with your, with your phone to talk yeah. to someone else. So I was already in, uh, aware that there was something transformative about the idea of talking to someone else, you know, that was remotely yeah. far away that like that. And I, and I, I could, I could tell that like, if this became a really big thing, it was going to absolutely transform the way that we think, the way that politics works, the way that culture works, I could see it all coming. And I, and I, and I wanted to, to document that. And so it was in one sense, I was handed a great gift, which is that, um, I liked writing big, long articles about massive social change just at the same time that it was happening. And there was an industry that where all the old people were like, were like, oh, I don't want to talk about this nerdy crap, you know, like, um, <laughs> let's get Clive to write, you know, 7,000 words on, uh, on uh, email and its impact on communication. So, um, so yeah, it, it was the beginning of, I mean, basically it's kind of weird, but like I, I've been doing the exact same thing in my journalism for 25 years because it never stops being fun and interesting, right? You know? I mean, there's, there's always sort of the next thing. That's right. It, exactly. It, it, you can, it's, it's. In a weird way, it's almost like you'll never stop having a career as long as you're, as long as you stay up. As long as long as you're curious about Sorry. it, and I remain curious. Yeah. For example, like you know, in the back in the '90s, really the the thing was, it was it was remarkable merely to sort of uh, report on how people's everyday lives were changing as they could communicate online at all, like full stop. You know, mm -hmm. even just email, instant messaging, that was radical. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, what's become a big thing in the last, I would say, the last three years is. Um, the emergence of deep learning AI everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. Like the, the 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 ability to have these machines that can do this very eerie pattern recognition and prediction, and how that is being woven into everything from you know you know sort of cars to word processors to dating apps to stop signs to you know Facebook's newsfeed and its deformation of the public sphere. Um, so you know that like I would say you know if you looked at my major features over the last two years it's 50 to 60% contingent upon the effects of AI on things. And so I've, I've had to become, you know, much more conversant and, 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 and reading and thinking deeply about that stuff. You know? What if from, from that point, let's say, what is the biggest or a couple biggest points that you'd want people to know sure. about the effect of AI on things? Yeah. Well, here's, uh, here's a couple things. So one is that the first thing I should say is that, um, uh, it is, um, it's incredibly good at a, a, a surprisingly narrow group of things, right? Mm -hmm. You know, today's deep learning AI is very good at pattern recognition, at being able to say, I have seen a million cats and now I can see another cat. Um, it is very good at predicting the next thing that's about to happen in a sequence that it has been trained on. So I have, you know, I have, I have looked at all the sentences in War and Peace, and if you gave me one word, I could predict what the next 10 words of War and Peace are likely to be, or something that sounds like War and Peace. Also very good at that. Um, so th those, those two tricks are very, very valuable, and they're cr going to crop up pretty much anywhere um, that you can imagine technology happening, because a lot of Human life really is just, you know, what's the next thing we think is going to happen? Um, you know, can you recognize this thing? That, those tricks will, will take you very far. Um, but uh, the second thing to know is that uh, 
for all the successes in getting that to work, we don't understand terribly well how it works, right? And this, this, is, this is dangerous, this is weird. Because you know, traditionally software, coders you know, it, it wrote a long program and it might be complicated, but they could walk you through every step of how it works if they needed to. It, uh, the watch works is linear, right? But the way deep learning works is you train something uh, by showing it a cat and if it gets it right, it adjusts its little internal weights a little bit. If it gets it wrong, it adjusts its internal weights again. You, sh you have to show it a million cats, right? So it has adjusted its internal weights a million times. And by the time it's done, it's an amazing cat recognizer. But the person who trained it, you know, can't tell you how those weights work anymore, right? And so what that means is you can have a very good AI that works very well at predicting something in a sequence or, or recognizing something. It could, it could recognize that I clapped Thompson in a terrible car loan risk, and it will say, don't loan uh, money to this guy for a car. But if I go to the car company and say, well, why aren't you loaning the me the money? They don't know why, right? So this black box aspect is a in very interesting problem. Uh, that should make us a little wary of how and where we deploy AI for high-stakes things. You know, video games, cat recognizers, who cares? Uh, loan, you know, sort of approval, uh, um, face recognition in, in, a, in a federal database. So the third thing, though, and this, one's, this one I think is, oh, sorry, Quickly carry on. Quickly on that, though, yeah. it seems like one of the big things around that, it seems like it's, it's creating this big kind of liability um, yeah. Like, like yeah. paradox or problem yeah. or, or yeah. just sort of, 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 you know, in certain situations you probably would need to be able to justify. That's right. That's um, right. Yeah. And, and you need to sort of know the liability around it. And yet, if we can't do that, then, then there's, there's a bit of a gray zone. I agree. From, from a legal point of, of like, oh, wait, well, then, you know, could you say that this AI is discriminating against me because yeah. whatever that's against such and such law mm -hmm. or so on and so forth. Yeah, I have been waiting for a... Uh, some big litigation on this, right? Hasn't happened yet. Um, I'll bet it will. I think, I think you've called it exactly right. Uh, it, it, and I think it's probably making some lawyers at big companies nervous, right? You know? Um, now, um, so, so, so these are some of, the, these are some of the, um, the things I think that are worth knowing about AI. We're also going to be seeing it more and more because it's getting easier and easier to deploy. 10 years ago, uh, deep learning was hard. You, you needed great big, fast computers and you needed people that like had written the algorithms, the training algorithms, and understood really complicated math. Now, you and I, knowing yeah. basically nothing, could download uh, a model and start training. In fact, just the other day, I downloaded uh, this thing that essentially automatically recognized uh, the expression on your face and delivered it as a little, a little variable that I could integrate into some code. So for example, uh, I was working on something, a word processor that, um, would recognize what mood you're in as you as you as as you write basically, uh, and and that, yeah, I, I could do that because I didn't have to. I really didn't have to figure that out. It's just sitting there for me to use. Would, would you get them? Would you, just out of curiosity for your own personal use? Yeah. Would, would you then use that for it to like help choose words that you could use so it could like better express yeah. what you're <laughs> yeah, trying yeah. to get in your writing? Like, exactly, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was having I was having fun with exactly that. I was trying to think. All right, so if I can recognize my mood as I'm writing, what 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 might that be useful for? Um, and uh, uh, one thing I was also thinking was, well, maybe um, I, it, maybe I was also thinking about it uh, a, a to-do list mm -hmm. that 
gives you the hard tasks when you're in a good mood and gives you the easy tasks when you're in a bad mood, right? You know, like, it, you know, it's like, it's like, well, I know there's these 50 things you got to do, Clive, and you've already, you've already tagged them as being, you know, this one's brutal, this one's easy. So it's like, you're in a good mood, tackle the, tackle this badass stuff, you know? Like, Absolutely. No, that's, that's just really, really funny. Um, I'm just saying, oh, that's kind of more or less where I went. That's more or less a good place we could wrap up. Could you... Sure. I don't know. Closing thoughts? <laughs> closing thoughts, but yeah. also, I mean, you mentioned about your book, so maybe touch on your book briefly yeah, sure. and, yeah. and so people know about it. Everyone should go out and buy my book. Um, and I'll everyone. And, <laughs> I'll, and I'll tell you why you should buy my book. First, I'll tell you what the book is, and then I'll tell you why you should buy it. Um, so the book is called Coders, and it's basically a, um, uh, a fun look at the, the lives and the worldview and the psychology and personality of all the people that have built all this software that now runs your world, right? So what were they thinking when they built it? You know, what were they trying to do to the world? Um, what makes them tick? Uh, I think it's incredibly important to understand uh, the worldview of coders because their worldview is beginning to dominate ours. So that's what the book is about, basically. As I like to say, do you own a phone? Do you have a laptop? Then you need to read this book. Now, the reason why I think you really have to buy it is because... Um, I'll know if you don't. Uh, um, <laughs> He's uh, watching you with that face recognition app uh, that, he, that he downloaded, and not, not, <laughs> not, not quite, not quite. <laughs> but like, here's what here's what happened. So the, the, the it's a funny story. I'll end with this story. So, uh, so I, I had to learn a bunch of programming. You know, no, I didn't have to, but I, I learned a bunch of programming while I wrote the book because you know I, I'd done this coding when I was a kid, but I hadn't done a lot of programming in my 20s and 30s. Uh, in, the, in my 40s, I started up again because I wanted to be able to talk to the, the coders I was. I was interviewing and, and, and know about the languages they were using. So I'm learning a bunch of Python, a lot of JavaScript, some Rust. Um, when I, my book came out, uh, I basically sat there refreshing the Amazon page over and over and over again. Because you're, you know, new authors are always like, am I, you know, what's my sales rank? You know, what's my sales rank on Amazon? Like I would literally work for five minutes and then check the page. And then I'd work for five more minutes and check the page. And I did that every five minutes, you know, literally for for three solid days until finally I was like, this is unhealthy. You know? like, this, is, this, is like, this is really bad for my psych psych psychologically. And I realized, well, you know, I know enough programming. I could just write a little bot that does this for me. So I wrote a Python web scraper bot that goes in and scrapes a page and figures out if I'm on any lists and then texts me a little thing saying, here's the lists that you're ranked on and here's your overall sales rank. And it does it four times a day. Um, and it cured me. Yeah. I, I, I no longer have to sit there, you know, doing this repetitive task. I have a little bot doing it for me. It's been doing it for six months. So the reason why you have to buy the book, and I will know if you do, because I will see an uptick <laughs> in my sales rank when I get texted by that bot four times a day. I, I love that that uh, kind of from that closing story that you've basically gave, created a bot to give you peace of mind. I did exactly. Yeah, my, it's it's my little it's my little. I, I have a bot that freaks out about my sales rank so that I don't have to. <laughs> exactly. Let's let's close on live. Thank you so much uh, and your your bot that helps you not freak out and yeah thank you so much uh, I, I had a good time talking yeah, thank you uh, hi everybody welcome to the love the problem podcast as before we're here at tech festival uh, sitting down with a number of wonderful speakers i'm really really excited right now to sit down with chris mancina uh, founder of the hashtag, um, I think he's in something called Molly now, right? Is it the newest? Uh, uh, no. Well, 
I wasn't that. Uh, okay, well, I guess I, I was. I was looking so. through. Okay, <laughs> I yeah. guess there's a part it of the story. <laughs> I guess it's part of a story that we we need to get into. Mm. I don't know if we have time today. Uh, anyways, uh, quite excited to sit down with him. Let's j jump right into it. Chris, thank you so much. Uh, you just let people know a little bit about your background and, and really try to go back. Let's, let's as far back as, as we can. Really get deep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I feel like I can go pretty far back. But um, <laughs> yeah, no. Thanks for having me on. Um, you know, I think uh, it's it's been really interesting to just you know be here um, at Tech Festival, um, you know, to to see this perspective and to see what they're trying to do and bringing a conversation around like like the current state of tech. Um, my background started uh, in tech probably in 2004, 2005, um, and uh, it started out with me just getting involved with like launching Firefox on the browser. And um, can I, can I ask you a quick question? Yeah. What sort of pushed you to get involved with launching Firefox? Yeah, I mean, and, and I don't want to like take credit for that. Like, no, no, it was, no, 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 but, but like, <laughs> like to answer your question, um, you know, my, my background, my training is kind of product design, it's uh, user experience design, it's developer platforms, it's just like, you know, kind of like loving the web as this uh, vehicle for giving lots of people the ability to contribute their stories and to, um, to share their lives. Can I, can I ask you another question from there? Like, what got you to love the web? Um, I think it was being a bit of a social outcast and misfit, misfit, you know, growing up, um, and seeing a lot of dysfunction in, uh, the school, you know, in my, in my high school specifically and observing what I thought was a dysfunction in the kind of communication that people were, were, were not having essentially. Um, there was a lot of parents that were confused about schedules. There were like, you know, all these clubs that were going on, but like they couldn't sort of keep their members sort of organized. Um, the faculty was kind of not able to, you know, communicate with parents effectively. And these are probably like bigger structural, um, challenges, but it seemed to me that the web as this new medium that I was discovering, you know, that connected all these people together, um, and this was back in the days of like, you know, AOL and stuff. So mm -hmm. this is like early, early web days. It seemed to me that if just people had more access to information more easily, that they could actually solve a bunch of these communication and coordination challenges. And um, it, it seemed that um, the web was this amazing kind of like permissionless place to go and share your story. And I don't think I really fully understood it at the time. And it's taken me a long time to really understand it. But um, I had a lot of, I think, privilege you know, growing up, having access to computers, and then being able to use a computer to sort of, you know, share my perspective or share my story or to connect with other people, you know, who at the time were, you know, anonymous or pseudonymous um, without the kind of threat of bullying that, you know, or, or ostracization that uh, I might have been experiencing in school. And so, like, it just seemed that this was like an amazing new social platform that could connect a lot of people and help them find other people who are like them. And so that was something I started to do in high school. I built my high school's website. I built a bunch of club websites. I wanted to get everybody online. I thought like <laughs> this is the future. Um, and so when I, you know, I, I basically like turned that passion into um, a web design kind of consultancy, you know, when I was like 15 and then um, worked for the first web design company in New Hampshire and then went to college and studied uh, communication design and continued doing my consultancy. And so by the time I got out to Silicon Valley in 2004, just fully believed in the power of the web and the importance of the web. And I was so concerned about Microsoft being a monopoly and essentially putting a tax on people being able to permissionlessly write to the web. And so Mozilla stood for kind of opposition to that monopoly power 
and it seemed necessary to invest in an alternative and open source solution um, to make sure that it stayed open and free. Andre, and what, I'm just trying to think of, of, of sort of, let's say, historical context of this. Like, what do you think is sort of the impact that, that having this open and free version of the web, I, I mean, I remember when Mozilla came out and, and I want to say I, I switched pretty quickly. Like, sure. it, it was just a thing of just like, I saw this, I, said, I just went, yes. Yeah. Like, 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 I was just like, I, I want this other one. And I, 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 I think in, initially, not so many people were, but, but at some point, more and more people were like, no, this is just such a better web browser. I mean, I mean not to toot your horn too much, but, but it just was. Um, but what, what do you think sort of was, was this sort of the real impact of having this sort of secondary sort of um, community-based option for, for exploring the web? And, and, well, and, I think the, the thing that's important is that Mozilla represents a continuation of what has been kind of this long-term, um, almost like iceberg-sized movement of taking technologies that were largely designed for and used by experts, uh, whether those were people in the military or in academia or engineers, and making these technologies democratized and used by more and more like normal folks. And so Microsoft really was a, you know, the kind of like business era of the internet and of technology and of computers. You know, you got computers to become more efficient at doing office type productivity. Um, and then people started to take those computers home or doing work at home. And um, what Mozilla started to offer, especially to, you know, teenagers in a way, was a way to participate in this computing revolution that previously had been restricted to, you know, business applications. Um, and I don't think that we necessarily, again, like recognize it at the time, but it's important to remember that Blake Ross, uh, who was one of the developers of Firefox and a very instrumental person to getting that product shipped, was 16 at the time. You know, he was this mm -hmm. random kid in Florida who, you know, just kind of started tinkering on this thing and then became kind of like this leader, um, which I think really represented what that was about, which was about, um, giving anybody who wanted to participate uh, an ability to do so um, and to give people who are passionate about something an opportunity to contribute in a meaningful way. So what did, what did Mozilla like mean? It was sort of, again, it was a necessary vehicle for building the web as a platform, as a platform that was one, like performant, that was fast. Firefox brought the concept of tabs, and so now you could actually have like multiple web pages mm -hmm. open at the same time, which now maybe it's gone a little bit too far, like a lot of, <laughs> a lot of things in tech. Um, but it was, it was saying, look, like anybody who can figure out how to write some HTML can basically put something out there to the, to the world and can raise their voice uh, as, as well and on a, a par with any major corporation that has millions of dollars to like spend on this stuff. And that's enormous. Um, previously, for any individual to be able to reach the world you know, with a message could have taken you know, years or um, it, it just would have been incredibly difficult and incredibly expensive, either in time, effort, or energy, or whatever. And suddenly now, a kid like me um, could show up and publish my thoughts and my story and my ideas to the web, and maybe no one would read it, but maybe somebody would. And um, that just felt like it was a way of breaking out of the silos that so many of us exist in, where we do feel like we're kind of um, just like, you know, socially not part of like the mix of, of people who are around us. We feel different somehow, somehow in some way. And it turns out that we're, we're not that unique and that that actually can lead to a great deal of um, lessening that, that, that anxiety. I want to jump off, off that. Uh, sure. There's a couple of things I want to say, but jumping off that point, I, I think it's really interesting what you're saying because in a way, I think one of the things that, that like the web has done is given the people to the, let's say, the opportunity to get the benefits 
of traveling sure. without actually going anywhere. Some. Like, like, I mean, yeah, some, not all, but, but, but a certain amount of, of like realizing that, wait a second, there are people halfway around the world that aren't all that different from myself right. and, and have similar interests and so on and so forth. And whereas, let's say, I don't know, 20 years ago, plus or minus, you would have actually had to go halfway around the world to, 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 to have that kind of experience. Well, maybe I mean, to, to, to build on your point, right, like there are some people who travel yeah. and there are some people who don't. And as someone who's become more of a traveler, like this year specifically, uh, when I meet other travelers, there's sort of uh, a knowingness mm -hmm. and, and we can like jump ahead to be like, you know, where have you been recently and what mm -hmm. are some of the experiences that you've had? As opposed to saying like, you know, you, you lead a life where you kind of like live in one place and so therefore the things that you know and the people that you're connected to uh, remain relatively consistent mm -hmm. from your day-to-day -day experience. You know, I'm meeting new people all the time. And so the nature of my connections and relationships are rather different than um, folks who don't travel a lot. And so if you imagine in, you know, the, the late 90s to early 2000s, uh, the people who are on the internet and were able to communicate to other people on the internet were of a certain, uh, like a certain type. They were, in a sense, sort of fellow travelers on the information superhighway, as we called it back then. Um, and there was a kind of, again, there was, there was certainly an amount of privilege that a lot of those people had who had access to the computer, computers and who had access to, you know, getting online. Um, but there was this kind of amazing, uh, you know, culture or uh, like almost like internet society in a sense where you look around and like people are like, this is amazing. Like what this tool gives us is this ability to express ourselves more, more honestly and more authentically than we could do perhaps in a world where we have to restrict ourselves or uh, present a different facade in order to fit in. Um, and so uh, to your point about like traveling without traveling, I think it's also though about, you know, meeting people of a similar mind or experience who are recognizing the potential of this platform and having conversations with them and, and, and expressing themselves in ways that they hadn't had the ability to do so before. And meeting people who are in that state of self-recognition, I think was, was so amazing. And, and, and again, that was a big driver for a lot of the things that I worked on and contributed to. I find that really interesting and maybe kind of continuing that start a step, at, uh, one more step. Mm. And I, I'm not sure how more far you're involved with this, but, mm. but one of the things that I've been seeing really recently and that I'm like personally very, very excited about is let's say, you know, step one, you can sort of find other like-minded people mm. and connect with them and so on and so forth. But I feel like we're getting to a point where all of a sudden, not only can you connect to like-minded people, but you can create a business around catering to like-minded people and essentially blaze your own trail of, of develop, you know, how do I want to support myself? It's, it's by doing stuff that's great for people like me and, and, and I, I can find them directly. And, and to me, that's a really amazing thing of, of all of a sudden, I think more and more people are kind of I don't want to say it's a, a secondary economy, mm -hmm. but 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 it's it's certainly let's say a, a, a second a completely different career path, and 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 way of supporting yourself financially, that definitely wouldn't have existed any any other point in history. Like there, there would have been no way for you know if you had a very niche hobby or whatever, you know you would have maybe like you said before known one or two other right. people who did it. But but now you can get that on scale. Right. You you, you would know the, the two or three people in every city in the world. Potentially, I mean. Well, I, I, like I think scale is, is a dangerous word um, and a little mm -hmm. bit um, challenging with what you're saying, not uh, like, because there's like a desire to find scale. And I suppose mm -hmm. there are like, almost like powers of 10 scale, yeah. right? Because for example, there was a guy uh, that I met yesterday at Tech Festival who makes these amazing custom keyboards. And, you know, on the surface you hear custom keyboard and like nothing really comes to mind except like, I don't know, like nothing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> however, however, when, okay. I, when I describe it to you, you're going to be like, oh, that's not what I was thinking, but that sounds amazing. Um, these are these uh, anodized, like, aluminum, 
uh, keyboards that have like kind of like the the old school clackety clack kind of like you know okay. very thick deep keys. Okay. And he uses different types of like lube or gel to like make the sound like the keyboard sounds different and like the the there were like heavy there's like a weight to them that like feels really okay. good like this thing doesn't move and then there's a set of you know keys on the side and so it's just like this really artistic expression i mean this is imagine people who you know in a, in a previous culture would soup up their cars yeah you know with all sorts of like amazing tricked out decked out stuff that like very very tasteful okay like essentially there's this community of people like you're describing who are doing this for like custom keyboards and they're like meeting up and finding each other as you say through the internet uh and the, the challenge, though, is like there's a, a deep passion in this for them, and yet uh, I don't know that they're going to get to a scale where it's sort of economically viable. It's still very mm -hmm. expensive to produce these things, sure. but one, it's like a labor of love, and two, there's, there is this kind of like hobbyist aspect. So I completely agree with you in the sense that people who have these very esoteric like interests are able to find each other like through this you know, network, through this mm -hmm. amazing like place where, again, like you'd be like, well, I, I, I had this idea for like this really cool keyboard that was sort of like, you know, NASA colors and like, <laughs> you know, felt really good to like use. And yet um, I, I couldn't find anyone else who was doing this. And so the hardware didn't exist. And so I couldn't build it. And so therefore I'm stuck. And so now yeah. you can find people who, like you say, are, are opening up opportunities that would have been really hard to do. But it might not be. And maybe maybe my own bias is thinking mm -hmm. about scale mm -hmm. as being millions of people where scale but could be 10 people. I think from, from my point of view, when I talk about scale, it's just like enough people that you could live off it. Like, yeah, like it, it depends, it, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think it depends on what you're doing and whatnot, but just enough people, let's say, and I don't know that that person necessarily could, but theoretically there might be. I enough, suppose. Uh, th and that's what yeah. I'm saying is, and before there would definitely be no way you yeah. could make a living right. off well, of well, the, the market was very inefficient. Yeah, yeah. Right? So well, there could be a bunch of people who have these needs. And one mm -hmm. is getting them to actually identify that they have those needs and mm -hmm. then to somehow express them to the market that says, yes, I want this. And then to find people who are able to service those needs and then to connect them. So essentially it's building a two-sided marketplace, sure. right? And I think, you know, what is interesting um, is that because now we are so all connected, a lot of these latent needs that were never mm -hmm. met in previous eras uh, now have the, the, a greater potential to be met. And so you think about, for example, Airbnb hosts mm -hmm. and there's a whole cottage industry which I don't really know where that phrase came from, but you know, <laughs> essentially where there's some probably like you know localized context where um, there's a set of needs that sort of arise out of uh, a different set of services that are being provided, or for example, in this case, like hosting. And so there are like kits that you can buy as like an Airbnb host that will help you, you know, kind of have like an amazing mm -hmm. like setup in your house, and you might not have very good taste. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you went to like you know Bed Bath and Beyond or something, you might buy a bunch of like you know cheap trinkets or whatever, and you know, not do a very good job, mm. but because there are people now that have this desire to um, decorate interiors, they use that skill, as you say, to sort of offer a service for people that, you know, would love to make their Airbnbs look nice and like have a really good kind of experience and also do it in a unique way. Um, so you can go on like, you know, an Etsy or a place like that to find like sort of artisans that are putting this stuff together and are curating the stuff and are therefore serving those markets um, that didn't exist before. So it's, it's definitely true. Interesting. Uh, let's... I, I, I was going to say pivot, but, but sort of pull it back and, and get back in. So, mm -hmm. so you sort of, you, you're building Mozilla mm. uh, or helping build Mozilla. I know more like the community side, but yeah. The, yeah, the community side and, and helping with that project. Obviously, you're, you're not sold out. Like kind of what evolved 
post that <laughs> so much so much what's, what's the next part of it I mean so so like the the question I, I think that you know you're asking is like what is the problem that I'm in love with and yeah. I think the problem that I've been in love with throughout my career is finding ways to apply technology largely digital technology but also behavioral technology towards the problem of connecting people together um, and also helping people to see one another more clearly and that also includes figuring out how to help people see themselves more clearly which I think is probably a more recent uh, endeavor. So the through line there is really, again, going all the way back to you know, high school, seeing this dysfunction, seeing how people weren't communicating, weren't connecting, seeing that you know, the web could be a vehicle to connect people together. So I went and, and did all the things I described up until Mozilla, and then we launched the browser. And it occurred to me that one of the problems with the browser was that it was focused on a document model. Um, which was sort of inherited from you know the architects of the web, who were again academics and people who were writing documents, mm-hmm. and it, it it seemed to me that what was missing from the web model was a notion of people, mm-hmm. uh, and that if you built people into the browser, that that would be this amazing way to actually you know kind of bring social interaction to the web itself, and so, so uh, ended up. Can, can I ask the obvious question, mm-hmm. which is how do you build people into the browser? Um, well, uh, you have context in your phone. And so the phone actually was probably the better context for um, kind of giving you the ability to, let's say, import your contacts or import your friends like on social networks and social platforms. Um, But at the time, you know, the browser was the primary way that you would obviously connect to the internet and the phone was largely, you know, useful for like phone calls. So we weren't thinking about the phone in the way that we use phones today. But the idea of building people into the browser was to have first a sense of personal identity, meaning that you could sign into the browser so you'd have a persistent identity, and you could essentially say, this is who I am, and you could log into a website with, let's say, one-click button. Mm-hmm. And then once you go to these different websites, the different websites want to be able to tell you which of your friends are also using that website. So you can find them, you can interact with them, you can share with them. Uh, and so the browser would actually be the place in which you collected all this information. And therefore, given that the browser is your user agent, essentially helps you decide which websites you should you know, share this information with in order to get benefits from them. Um, and so started a, a browser company called Flock and worked on that for basically a year. And the problem was that there weren't existing APIs um, that really enabled this. And so set about spending a couple of years trying to come up with APIs and formats to express these quick, concepts. Quick question around that. Okay, two different things. Mm. Uh, one, for the people who don't know, just mm. quick, quick definition of API. Sure. Uh, but the second thing is, as someone who's probably slightly younger, because we're, we're, ta- the years you're talking about were probably my high, uh, late high school years. When did you graduate? Uh, high school of five. Okay, yep. yep. Right, I'm, I'm yep. more or less right, right around there. Um, I don't really even remember APIs being a thing at that era. So, so how, like, where? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> Not crazy. It was, was no. one of those crazy. Yeah, yeah, okay. I mean, you have to like remember <laughs> that the the previous era of the web was a dial-up web, mm-hmm. and yeah, so yeah. essentially you would you that know, I remember very okay. much. <laughs> so you would like connect to the internet, essentially download some stuff, and then like disconnect from the internet. And so the APIs, as they were, were more like kind of uh, you know file formats, mm-hmm. where you would have um, like in the case of contacts, uh, there was a format called vCard. And vCard was a pretty esoteric, you know, format, but it was the way in which you would represent contact information. And so you'd have like the first name, last name, you know, suffix, phone number, all that stuff, and it would just be encoded in a pretty static, you know, text file. And so if you have like, you know, ten contacts, then you essentially have, you know, one vCard file, or you have ten vCard files. And if you want to share your contacts with a website, you would just sort of like send a bunch of those files, you know, from one website to another. Or in the case of like Flock, the browser, you might upload 
those 10 files to a website and it would import all of them. It would strip out the email addresses and use those as keys to find other people on the service. Mm -hmm. So, huh. uh, okay. right? So an API yeah. uh, essentially is uh, application programming interface and it's essentially a way for one application to talk to another one. Essentially to say, you know, here's the data that I need. Can you get it for me? Or here's uh, a record that I'd like you to modify in some way. And then uh, the API defines the communication between those two things back and forth. And so the other service could say, okay, yep, I got that information. I'll make the changes for you. That's confirmed. Or I'm sorry, I can't find that record. Um, whatever, whatever. Um, and so the fact that there wasn't a standard way of doing this because social networks were really just getting started around that time um, meant that we had an opportunity to sort of define the standards for this that could be implemented by the browser. Um, and this was sort of around the time that Facebook was starting to just break out of schools. Um, and so the hope was that instead of only defining how a document could be presented on the web, you could also have a type of record which would be like a person. Um, and so if I, you know, for example, if you have a blog, you could list a bunch of information about yourself, sort of like any kind of uh, social networking profile, and I could add you as a friend within the browser. And then my browser essentially would sort of send a message to your, your website and say, oh, Chris wants to add you as a friend. Do you want to accept that or not? And then as a result of that, there's some sort of handshake that mm -hmm. says, okay, now we're friends. And I may get access to additional information like from your website that then my social browser would be able to mm -hmm. show for me. This is basically the way that Facebook works, except yeah, it's all course. owned by one company. Sure. So we were trying to do this in a decentralized way. Interesting. What? Jumping off that point, because I feel like, at least in my mind, but I have heard bits and pieces, so it's maybe just because I don't know the right groups, mm. bits and pieces trying to do this. Why do you think that has been mostly successful through like a centralized company? And, and as far as I know, there hasn't been a really successful decentralized version of doing this. Yeah, uh, I mean, the biggest answer is scale. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, that's not the biggest answer. The <laughs> biggest answer is product design okay. um, and user experience. Okay. Uh, Decentralization puts a lot of onus on the user to care about how the technical underpinnings work, mm -hmm. and a lot of people don't care. You know, mm -hmm. like I want to be able to pay for something with a credit card, let's say, and I don't really want to know about the underlying mechanism for how it works. Mm -hmm. And you know, let's say, in a similar like metaphorical model, if I run my own you know credit card company for just myself, I just have a credit card that's just the Christmas in a credit card, and no one else can use it that when there are challenges, which could be like a chargeback or like a payment fails or like whatever it is, I don't want to have to deal with all that stuff. I want a service provider to do it for me. And in a similar way, when it comes to social networking, especially when you want to get the broadest number of people using it, trying to get every single person to run their own server and their own website and to update that website and to manage security and to add the features and to install the themes and to do all that work is something that became more and more onerous and fewer mm -hmm. and fewer people, especially as the internet scaled and became popular, were willing to do. So although there have been some efforts to, you know, and I think the, the most recent one that's had some success is called Mastodon. Um, one, they're quite esoteric mm -hmm. and they're made up of communities of people who are willing to do that extra technical work, mm -hmm. which sort of limits their broad scope and scale and applicability. And then the other piece is just, of course, the ways in which the big social media platforms have, you know, employed people that know how to kind of manipulate people into getting into habits to use them more and more. Yeah. And mm -hmm. when you're an open source developer, building one of these decentralized systems, that's kind of like the last thing that you want to do. And you know, you probably care more deeply about, you know, privacy and, and things like that 
but then that actually makes the service usually harder to use um, mm -hmm. because you're asking users to make more decisions about a yeah, lot sure. of complex privacy um, issues uh, that become pretty dicey pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So just well, in terms of product uh, experience, it's easier for centralized companies to move fast, iterate, and build a better uh, product. I think also to from from what you were saying about sort of all the decisions you make, I, I've gotten to a point and let's say been somewhat involved in, in product development and, and I've just gotten to a point of like, I assume every decision a, a user has to make is, is most likely you're, you're losing some. Yeah, like exactly. every additional right. decision, it's they have to, they're just, they're, you're, exactly. you're, you're just losing some. And so as that adds up, yeah, I mean, if it's 10% every time or whatever it is, it's, you're just losing some, you're losing some, you're losing some. And yeah, because we, we had, those of us who are working on the decentralized social web, you know, back in 2007 to 2010, um, you know, really, you know, we're kind of optimistic about this. Like, we really thought that was very important. Mm -hmm. We didn't want Facebook to win. And, um, like, ultimately, that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, like, sometimes the rebels lose. And sometimes, you know, the, the dark side blows up your face. Like, you know, yeah. that's what happens. Um, you were too late. And, and yeah. So you missed you know, a little hole and you're like, oh. It was a Tatooine that blew up. I don't know. My Star Wars trivia is not very good. But... You know, like, it, yeah, exactly. Um, you, you missed the exhaust pipe. And yeah, like, oh. right, right. Yeah, like, oh. <laughs> we'll try it in the, in the next generation. Um, yeah, so um, it just, it, it's, it's become so clear that the way in which people, people, I say broadly, yeah. uh, want to relate to technology is to not really experience it as technology, whereas technologists mm -hmm. do. And that's like a major, I think, difference. It's like, just because you watch television doesn't mean you want to know how it works. Mm -hmm. You know, you want to get like the shows and the entertainment that you want, and you're looking for the content. You're not looking for the implementation details. Do, do you think, just touching on that point though, mm -hmm. and something, I don't say necessarily believe what I'm about to say, but, but, but add it. something to, to do. I kind of feel like, let's say, especially starting around mid, late 2000s, as sort of the rise of, let's call it nerd culture, mm -hmm. technology culture, that more and more of general society is becoming technologists. Um, like as that's become, because that has become kind of hot and popular and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, I imagine that like if I were to think about kind of like a, like a chart or something, like a line graph or, or whatever, like, you know, there's sort of like the successive like layers. It's sort of like, um, what is it, the stratification layers of like kind of like, you know, rock and sediment over time. Yeah, yeah. And it's a little bit like that where like it sort of grows, but like the topsoil just gets like thicker and thicker of like, you know, the number of people who are on the internet versus like those who are technologists. Okay. Um, so yeah, absolutely. There's been a, a degree of sophistication that's been developed in the mass like culture, I would say, and, and, and lots of people have some exposure now to technology um, more than I, I think a lot of people would prefer in their own lives. Um, but as a necessity, you know, you have to like figure out how messaging works and you have to like get accounts and you have to like, you know, deal with single sign on and like passwords and like all this stuff that people used to really hate. I mean, mm -hmm. back when people were using the same password on every website, um, you know, we just weren't thinking about hacking the way that we do now. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, many of us were like raising the alarm and talking about it and like sharing that information. But people were like, oh, whatever, like it's not it's never going to happen to me. You know, just like, uh, you know, I'm never going to get in a car accident or something. And of course those people who get in car accidents probably said it's never gonna happen to me. Mm -hmm. So like at least there's some portion of people who use the same password everywhere and they get hacked and then eventually like they learned and yeah. you know, so um, are there, are there like more technologists now? I mean, for sure. Just as like, there's been more people who are on the internet or more people who are, you know, like in, in the world, but there is still, I think this general desire to like not feel as like 
manipulated by or controlled by technology by a lot of people, I think. Um, and there are a lot more people, obviously, who are using social media and, te and, and technology, and they're using it in ways that are perhaps more creative or more expressive. And so they're still looking for like the way of, of using these products for communication purposes, but not for the tech itself. And so I guess if I think about how to define a technologist, I'm thinking about someone who actually cares about the inner workings of it okay. uh, and wants to, you know, kind of get into the, whether it's like the code or like how things work or something like that, that goes deeper than a lot of people's basic interests. Interesting. Okay. No, that, that, that's a really, really interesting way of, of looking at it. No, it makes a lot of sense. Um, but you were sort of saying, so, so coming, coming back and I feel like I'm just check out how we're more or less coming to the end. Mm. So I, I think we're going to do this because I feel like I, I would not really be doing my job if I didn't, <laughs> if I didn't ask about it. So I want to get in and I imagine every time it's kind of what everyone wants to talk to you about. Mm. Um, so I want to get into sort of like how the hashtag was invented sure. and, and some of the stuff around that. I guess the, there's two things that pop in my head. One, um, I don't know, I've always wanted to get the chance to sit down with someone who, to get in, an insight to, you know, like, when you had that first idea for something that, in a certain way, not exactly, but you know, the first person who built the wheel. Yeah. And, and get, like, what went through their head of, of creating the wheel. Yeah. Um, and let's start there. And I guess I'll, I'll let you know my second question, yep. as well as like, something I was thinking of is why did the pound sign become the hashtag? That, that is sort of the other question that, that kind of is always in my head of, of something. Sure. And I think it's kind of funny now that it, it's now ubiquitous as the hashtag and more or less the concept of it as the, the pound sign is just completely like irrelevant, irrelevant yeah. anymore. And I, I find that fascinating. Um, so let's start with, with the first part and I'd be really curious about how that came about and, and so on and so forth. Well, I think, I think the, the, the first part will probably answer the second part too. Okay. Um, and you know, it, the, the process, like I think a lot of the, the context that we just like brought up yeah, yeah. around the history of like the decentralized like social web um, and what we were trying to do there like fits in in a very important way into like the story of the hashtag because the hashtag was was an idea that I proposed in 2007 and so it was like right in, at the sort of early phase of trying to figure out how to decentralize the social web um, you know we were building like I said a bunch of these like formats and protocols to try to give developers a way of connecting websites together in a more social way mm -hmm. and the hashtag just sort of like was pooped out of this process of <laughs> like the, the 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 simplest thing that could possibly work and and was you know stupid enough that could possibly like scale, um, yeah. you know because we were like again trying to figure out how do we make conversations happen between websites how do we allow you know a, a Twitter user to add a Facebook user as their friend, right? Well, quick quick question on this at least from yeah. my understanding of the story. Yeah. Were you already involved with Twitter at that point? Because my understanding is I guess I don't know maybe I'm wrong mm. and certainly. You're, it happened to you and not me, so, it's, so you can tell me more info. <laughs> yes. um, but I guess my understanding, for whatever reason, is, is kind of like you said, was you were working on something else and it came, and then kind of Twitter got involved somehow, or am I wrong mm. with, with the, the history of this? Um, that doesn't quite yeah. resonate. Okay. Uh, however, like I never worked for Twitter. Okay. Um, uh, you know, in, in a way, like I kind of worked for the web. Uh, okay. That was kind of like my thing back then. Like I was an open web advocate. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, the way that it happened was like I said, like a bunch of us were trying to sort of figure out how to build, you know, more social web technologies. And um, Twitter happened to be like this new, like social platform that came out that was allowing us to, you know, many of us were bloggers. Mm -hmm. And the previous idea was to connect each other uh, through our blogs. And that was going to be like the social web. And then Twitter came out and was like, actually, you can do this blogging, but you can do it over SMS. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. You just have to like keep your post to 140 characters, hence <laughs> microblogging. Yeah. Uh, and it was like, okay, that's cool. So now we have a way of kind of sending a message to a service and then it fans it out to all of our friends. And so we can ping all of our friends all at once in this push-based way, mm -hmm. right? So push notifications wasn't a thing back then. Push yeah. notifications didn't come out until 2009. Mm -hmm. So it was two years after the hashtag. Um, and so it was like recognizing, okay, so like people are starting to use this new medium to share information. But, you know, one of the problems is that when you follow someone, you're essentially signing up to get SMSs to your phone all the time whenever they tweet. And what was happening was like people would go to events like South by Southwest in Austin um, and would be tweeting about how great a time they were having. Whereas everyone who's like back in San Francisco, you know, like the tech world that wasn't at South by Southwest, would get super annoyed by this um, because they were getting all these notifications for an event that they weren't at. So yeah. it's like, how do we like shut those people up? Like I still want to hear from them, just not while they're gone. Yeah. You know, this is like super annoying. Um, and so the problem was like, well, how do we either address like, you know, great topics for Twitter or how do we create like groups? Because mm -hmm. all the social platforms that had come before, like Flickr and so on, you know, you could go to uh, a group section, you could create the group, and then people would publish to that group, and then it would be topical in that way. But over SMS, that just wasn't going to work. Um, so that was like one of the, the problems there. And, um, you know, we were also using something called IRC, Internet Relay Chat, um, which is kind of like a real-time predecessor to um, Slack. And they use the pound symbol actually for their channels. So if you want to go talk to people in the dogs channel or something, you know, you would use the pound symbol to say, I'm going to go, you know, into that channel and, and talk to people about dogs. I don't know why they use the pound symbol. It was just like a text character that was available. Um, and then, <laughs> so it was just for what it sounded like, they were just basically like, what do we have that's not, not being used? Pound symbol. All right, let's just use it. That, yeah, that's I what mean, it kind of sounds like. You could probably like just look at like the keyboard <laughs> yeah. and then look at like the shift key and be like, okay, which of these you know could work and like looks aesthetically good. And remember, like in the early <laughs> days of, of the internet, interfaces were done with text ASCII characters. Yeah, there were no pixels. You know, well, I mean, there were pixels, but there was like no designing. You know, like yeah, layouts. Yeah. It was all done just with like uh, fixed. Uh, fixed font text yeah, mm -hmm. and so like the the pound symbol just happened to be useful for that so that was that was like one piece of like the thought and the other was like well Flickr uses tags uh, to label like their photos and these are bottom-up kind of like user-generated uh, descriptors of photos so great okay so that's interesting so so why don't we just take like the tags and like the channels and then of course the iPhone um, came out in June of 2007 and I was writing my proposal for the hashtag in August. And so not many people had the iPhone yet. And most of us had phones uh, that had a numeric keypad. And on those phones, yeah, yeah, yeah. of course, was the asterisk and the <laughs> pound symbol. And so it just happened to be available and no one was really using it for anything. And yet it was like widely installed. And I was like, well, why don't we just like merge all these ideas together and use that? And so now when you're tweeting on your phone and your feature phone, um, you can just like put a pound symbol in front of a word or a phrase and that'll be like the topic of the thing that you're talking about. It doesn't require you to add any extra content except for one character, so it's very efficient. Uh, and then the services or the app developers can use that information to, you know, create searches or links or like whatever. So just a very like sort of poor man solution <laughs> to to this problem of of making Twitter more relevant and topical. Um, and anyway, so I, I I wrote up my proposal. It was like 2,000 words. I did mock-ups. I did the trending yeah. topics. Like I had it all designed. Um, you could follow a hashtag, which you still can't do, although they're supposedly working on it. Um, 
you could mute the hashtag if you don't want to like, hear about it. So it was like just like a way of saying, look, like this is a new type of word, a new type of phrase, and people should be able to use that as a kind of like handle for making the service more uh, efficient, relevant, you know, to them. And um, you know, brought that proposal to Twitter's headquarters. Walked in the front door, kind of went up to to Biz Stone, uh, one of the co-founders, and presented my idea, and they were like, that's so nerdy, it's just never going to work. <laughs> so, wait, 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 so, so you're, okay, yeah, sure, so quite yeah. possibly one of the most successful yeah. things on the, on that platform, you walked in and they're like, yeah, no. Yeah. So, so, quick question on that, like, what did it take to, like, convince Twitter that, like, yeah, the hashtag needs to be a thing? Uh, or did, or was it just, like, something? Oh, no, they, they fought it, tooth and nail. Okay. Until they were going for their IPO. And then they wanted to claim that it was like their exclusive property and they wanted to prevent other people from using it. And so up until the point where Twitter was going for their IPO, I was actually like very averse to uh, revealing my involvement with it. Like mm -hmm. I didn't want to really be known as like the inventor of the hashtag. Um, I wanted it to just be part of the web. You know, it's sort of like the guy that came up with like, you know, Bitcoin. Yeah. It's just like, it's something that you put out there and like if it's a good enough idea, it'll grow in its own traction. And especially when you know, I wanted people to adopt it and build it into their apps. I didn't want them thinking like I had some ulterior motive mm -hmm. to ask them to like support it. I was like, I just wanted them to do it because it was a good thing for the overall like social web ecosystem. Again, this is about decentralization. This is about giving tools to developers. Just like anybody can build a web page and publish it to the internet. I wanted anybody on any service to be able to use a hashtag, not just on Twitter. And so, um, yeah, like effectively it was like user behavior that over time caused Twitter to realize that actually it wasn't like going to destroy the service, although it's, you know, there are some negative uses of the hashtag. Um, but in fact, it was a really useful targeting mechanism and it was a way for people to create more meaning than they could otherwise using the existing uh, nomenclature of, you know, like written language. Okay, I wanna ask, and I think we're, we're, pretty, we're pretty much yeah. pushing time. Just for the last piece on this, like, I don't feel like it's immediately obvious, but I, I get really curious about these things. Where does the actual name come from? So I originally called them tag channels okay. um, in my proposal because that's, that's what that's they were. A, that's a terrible name, but yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, yeah, of course, it's a terrible name. Uh, <laughs> yeah. like, again, this is like geek culture, right? Yeah, it was yeah. like, I think this is what this is. It's a tag channel. <laughs> that's you such know? a taggy like, way to do this. Right? And my friend, uh, Stow Boyd, who was also you know, kind of like a observer of like social platforms and sort of, a, you know, a, a, wrote a bunch of stuff about it, um, wrote on, on his uh, Tumblr account, actually, that you know, he was sort of offering a critique to my idea and was like, oh, I think this thing that Chris Messina is doing with his hash space tags is interesting or something. And I was like, oh, hashtag, that's way better. So, <laughs> so, you know, like, uh, th like it was like a lot of inventions. It was taking a lot of existing work and kind of putting it together in a novel way, right? And a lot of, I think, people sometimes question or doubt the, like this idea of me being the inventor of the hashtag. And it's like, well, you know, did somebody actually invent the car if they didn't invent the wheel? Like it's, yeah. it's, it's all sort of brought together in a novel, you know, conception. And I've always given credit to the sources that inspired me. It wasn't like this divine, you know, immaculate conception. It was something uh. that drew from a lot of things that were out there. And so again, like Stowe Boyd is the guy that came up with like the name, mm -hmm. but like it was my idea to put the pound symbol in front of words on social media platforms <laughs> as a way of kind of trying to make, you know, conversations more efficient I, and topical. I think ending on that note, uh, you should 
now on be known as the guy who put the pound symbol in front of birds. <laughs> <laughs> Just, but, but see, from a marketing perspective, I know, you don't want to overuse it. So. <laughs> I think that's a great way to do it. Chris, thank you so much for sitting awesome. down with me. This has been really great. Uh, and thank you guys for taking a listen. Thanks. Hi, everybody. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Love the Problem podcast. This was another great event special where we went to TechFest. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed this as much as I did because it's not often that we get to sit down with such heavy hitters as Payal, Clive, and Chris. Um, this is just another example of what they're really doing at TechFest really well. So I suggest you check it out in the future. As always, please like, comment, tell us what we're doing well, tell us what we're not doing well, uh, fact check us on anything that you think is kind of nonsense, and please suggest some guests if you want to be on the show. Anyways, thank you so much and look out for the next episode.